Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Wrestlemania series podcast. After sounding a little like old time radio last week, I'm thrilled that we're coming through loud and clear in episode 2. Today's episode will feature three legends of the business. Jake the Snake Roberts, the million dollar man Teddy DiBiase, and old hacksaw Jim Duggan. And they'll be discussing the enormity of Wrestlemania 6, a pay-per-view which helped elevate WWE into the industry leader it still is today as we approach Wrestlemania 35 in the year 2019. For a little background, Wrestlemania 6 was headlined by the Ultimate Challenge as the Ultimate Warrior battled Hulk Hogan in the main event. But the show was also bolstered by a strong undercard that included Hacksaw defeating Canadian strongman Dino Bravo, as well as the most personal, heated, and intense story of the night, which was between Roberts and DiBiase. The three men also happened to be the best of friends, and they were back then too, from their time together at Mid-South Wrestling during their early 80s. But that was obviously kept private during their run in the World Wrestling Federation. Without any further delay, here are Duggan, DiBiase, and Roberts, three of the men who helped transform pro wrestling into the sports entertainment superpower it is today. WrestleMania 6, April 1st, 1990 at the Sky Dome, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Fascinating that we're at WrestleMania 35 now. A big reason for that is what you three helped build to get there, and I don't think that can be stated enough. I'm curious, though. I know in 2019 we highlight Kenny Omega and Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks and that friendship off-screen, where in... 1988, 1989, 1990, I'll start with you, Jim, if you don't mind. You really couldn't highlight a friendship with Ted DiBiase in 1990. It would have been sacrilege. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah, of course, the uh, kayfabe, uh, as they say in the terminology of professional wrestling, was very strong uh, back in the day. You know, good guys and bad guys didn't interact at all. Like, you weren't supposed to ride together. Uh, it was a huge taboo thing to be seen together. Jake, the same question. I mean, you've got a... You've got a I love WrestleMania 6 for so many reasons, but the most intense feud of the night, I mean, Warrior Hogan was the headline, but in terms of intense in a storyline, in a match that had feel to it, was you and Ted. Can you talk yeah. about a little bit, that, that friendship went back, what, at least a decade by that point? Oh, gosh, all the, all, all the, we're further than that, man. Yeah, almost all the way to the beginning of both of our careers. I mean, but, yeah. I mean, I remember um, back when I was refereeing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what, what they call you, I think... Uh, Fred, Fred Platt, yeah. <laughs> I remember one night we were in this little town, Laranger, and uh, I can't remember what I said. I looked at Jake and I said, hit me. He said, what? I said, hit me. So he did. <laughs> I didn't realize at the time nobody had talked about how to throw a working punch. Yeah. Well, they haven't changed much. <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, people ask me, they, they always say, well, what, what was your favorite WrestleMania? And I said, my favorite WrestleMania was WrestleMania Six because I thought that Jake and I uh, had an unbelievable match, uh, you know, yeah. on the show. And, 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 you know, it's kind of like people, we call it doing the dance. And sometimes certain guys just have chemistry with each other and to the point where, uh, yeah, we communicate, but oftentimes it's just body language. You'll put yeah. yourself in a position, and the other guy knows exactly what you want. And, yeah, you're feeding, you're feeding each other. Yeah. Yeah, you feed each other. 
Because the reason we can do that is neither one of us are worried about getting over. Because we know that the other guy's going to take care of that. Exactly. exactly. And that, that doesn't happen anymore, man. And guys today are all job scared and bullshit and worried about, you know, this, that, and the other. That's, what's, that's one of the things that's hurt the business is guys just, they don't help each other. They don't feed each other. You know, so they go out there and pull teeth, man, and uh, try to make up for it by doing, you know, stupid shit. You know, jumping off the top of a cage, for instance. It's funny. You think a great wrestler to jump off the top of a cage, it takes an idiot to do that. Fascinating you say that, Jake, because yeah, even... also a good thing that... Please, Jim. ...is that you get two second-generation wrestlers, yeah. and just two of the, the best. And I think anybody that grows up in the business is just that much more polished than the rest of us. And that Jake and Dave together, I mean, that's... Jim, I've got to jump in that because you say that. I, it's funny how Chris, like I thought it's, watching your match with Dino Bravo, Canadian Strongman, it's so fascinating because I said to myself during that match, nobody throws a better clothesline than Jim Duggan. It was just so realistic. Even when you miss the clothesline, a lot of guys today, and I have a lot of respect for anybody who gets in the ring, you know, I'm, I'm on the outside of it, so just a perspective on the outside, but guys when they throw the punch today kind of throw it up. You still threw the regular punch. Like I love how the Christmas and, t and physical nature of your match. Until the next match was Jake and Ted, and watching you know with awe the way I don't know the way Ted sells an atomic drop, for instance. Or it's just you guys were just such uh, took so much pride in your craft. I, I want to get in. Actually, well, my clothesline please. was pretty much my whole repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> well, you perfected it. So many questions, uh, you know, fact and fiction in pro wrestling. It's so much fun to speak with you through directly because there's so much, as you guys know, hearsay in this business and, and sources say and that sort of thing. But uh, always the, the word that Dino Bravo was a little stiff in the ring. From an outsider's perspective, it didn't seem that way at WrestleMania 6. Maybe because he was in the ring with you and you were just, I mean, larger than life at this point in your career. Uh, working with Dino, any recollections of that match? I know the big part of that story was post-match with the earthquake. But any memories of working with Dino? Well, just, you know, the USA coming up there in Toronto was, you know, crazy because it's, back then, you know, you could get the USA channel in a lot of different countries and a lot of guys were like, there's no way you're going to get in Canada with Dino Bravo. Yeah. And of course, Dino carries the Quebec flag and the folks in Quebec, they don't like the other Canadians. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but up there in Toronto, they got with the USA channel a little bit and of course, uh, we're, we're dealing with the Frenchman Martin in this corner and, uh, you know, I also was close to my hometown in Glens Falls, so I had my own training uh, section come over. <laughs> Jim, a match like that where, where Jesse Ventura was so critical, because sometimes, you know, I cover WrestleMania, which is so much fun, but sometimes you just lose so much because from the from the writing perspective because you're not listening to the broadcast. You know, the, so much of the story is enhanced by the broadcasters. And Gorilla and Jesse were so, 
I mean, I, I just think they made you, you were already a star, but they enhanced that as the match went along, especially with the earthquake moments after. Do you have any memories of, of working with, at this point, John Tenta, well, or earthquake was on his way up the card, and he was just so dynamic, and you sold for him and made him look like a million bucks. Was that part of your goal at WrestleMania six, looking back, to make sure earthquake shined? Didn't really have a choice because the earthquake over, uh, you know. 7.2 uh, in the Richter you know, scale. I think it goes, it goes back to the, to the type of guys we are, you know. Our job is to make the other guys shine. And let me tell you this. If I'm going to get in the ring with somebody, the first thing I'm going to do is try to make that guy. Make that guy bigger than life. Because that way, exactly. if, he beats, if he beats me, he's a monster. Because I've already made him look bigger than life. But if I beat him, it makes me that much more. Now, you get a lot of guys out there today, they'll hold back and not give the guy anything. How stupid is that? Because now you just got beat by a guy that didn't do a damn finger in the match, look like shit, and he beat you. Right. And see how idiotic that is? That's stupid. Great point. And that's the thing that, that as, as, you know, again, we grew up in the business, and we were second generation, and the whole point is like, you know, if you're, if you're wrestling somebody, and, and yeah, like Jake just said, if you make him look really good and you, and you beat him, then, then you really beat somebody. But right. if you make him look like crap and you beat him, well, who'd you beat? You know? Nobody. Nobody. So it doesn't make him, doesn't do anything for him, and it doesn't do anything for you. But you never, never expose your opponent's weaknesses. Accentuate the positives. Make him a monster, man. You you mean, I, I wrestled you, Andre, of course, at the end, and, and the whole thing was don't make Andre get up and down. Well, I didn't. Hell, if he can't get up and down, I'm not going to knock him off his feet. Same thing with Bad News Brown. His knees were shot. He couldn't work with Hogan because he couldn't get up and down. With Hogan, he had to bump. But he worked with me. We, hell, we did it. had a great damn time. Fascinating. And, and you know, and that and Jake saying was so true because I, I remember when I when I turned heel, I turned heel against uh, for the first time against Junkyard Dog in, in Mid South. And you know, JYD was great on the microphone, but his skills in the ring were limited. He looked great, but there was only so many things he could do. And Terry Funk put it to me this way: He said, "Ted." He said, you got to put him in the middle of the ring and work around him. That's right. Accentuate, accentuate what he does well and stay away from the things that he doesn't do well and, and make the match that way. And so, Absolutely. That's what you do. Wrestling psychology Absolutely. from three of the best of all time. It's funny what Jake just said about making your opponent into a monster. If you were from outer space or had never seen pro wrestling before, Mary Tyler Moore was in the front row. I don't know if she watched every week. But if you didn't know who the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase was before Jake's promo with Mean Gene backstage, you couldn't wait for that match to start. I mean, that, that was the... The, just from the beginning of that, this is the biggest match of your career. Everything you stand for is on the line. Jake, I know you've, you've been very open about your substance abuse issues in the past, um, yeah. but, but your mind, obviously, to, to put this together, a victim of your own greed, wallowing in the muck of your own avarice, I mean, stuff, you must have been on another level writing-wise. That couldn't have been off the cup. Is that something you wrote the night before? How did you come up with that? Uh, I just came up with, with that line, man, and... Uh and then use it. That's what I like to do. I would sit, you know, sit in the bar and uh, you know drink soda water or whatever. Yeah, right. Anyway, I would think <laughs> I think of stuff that caught my attention, things that you know, sayings that people said. Because my thought was, do work on a subliminal level. If I say something that you already know is true that you've heard before, then your mind agrees with what I've said without you even knowing it. 
Now, here's here's another level to this thing. The Book of the Avarice is, is being turned into a movie. And I get to play the lead. We're going to go to China and shoot it. And it's going to be about a gunslinger that abuses Chinese people. And um, in the end, he, he, he gets shot and stuff. And then he makes these Chinese. He kidnaps a family and makes them uh, bring him back to health. But uh, I'm really excited about doing this movie and about bringing bringing out you know, how the Chinese were abused back, back in the 1800s. And that's something that's it's funny. It ties. Ted probably remembers back then, but I don't. I ties there. <laughs> ties into 1990. Jake, I've got to ask about the promo. Knowing Ted the way you know Ted, again, knowing Ted at that point for over a decade, yeah. if you didn't know Ted as well, if this was you know against Hogan or against Warrior, you had a, right. you, a, did it help the fact that you knew Ted so intensely? Did that help the fact that you could put something like this to put something like that together in terms uh, of the we promo? Didn't, we didn't have to, I didn't even have to think about it, man. It was just too easy. You know, well, you know, the gift that I was given, yeah, the gift that I was given, man, I don't know how the hell I came up with it. You know, sometimes I think it's because I went through so much as a kid that I had to learn how to lie at a very young age, you know, just to protect myself. You know, I had to learn how to read people at a very young age because I had people that were hurting me and abusing me. So when you go through that as a kid and you learn how to lie, your interview is all about your intensity and about making people believe what you're saying. You do that with timing. You do that with the way you look at people. I don't look at people. I look through them. That's the key. And, you know, again, I, I get back to what Jake is just saying there. As, a, as I was a kid growing up, you know, I I would watch I would watch my dad. My dad was a heel always. And, uh, and of course, I knew who he really was. I mean, so it did take me long to figure, figure a lot of things out. But I studied that, and then when I started in the business, I would go when you know, I, you know, we would always do our interviews on Wednesday morning after Shreveport on, on uh, Tuesday night, and I didn't have to be there. I was on the opening match every night when I started, but I would go there and I would listen to the guys that were in the the semi-main and main event, cut their promos, and I would watch their matches. And I, I, I was a student of my business because I loved it, and, and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to to be as, as good as I could possibly be. And so the, the, the thing, the gift of, it's like Jake is, Jake, Jake's gift is, you know, I, I, you know, even better than mine. But people always say, gosh, you cut such great interviews. And I said, how'd you do that? I said, you know what? I knew I knew the, the bullet points. And I can't, I can't explain it. I mean, but red light on the top of the camera went on. I started talking. Yeah. And uh, it was something that, that's, the thing about pro wrestling, the best part of pro wrestling, and it's, it's a dying art, is, is it's improv. It's that we learned how to we did things so often, and it's like every crowd we got in front of. You know, you could wrestle uh, one night in Chicago, and you go to Denver the next night and try to have the same match, and those people aren't going to react the same. Every, every community has its own DNA, and they're going to respond differently. And so when they don't respond the way you expect them to, then you've got to be able to feel that and, and shift gears read it away. You gotta read it, man. Absolutely. I mean you can you can take prime rib out there, but if they don't if they're wanting to fish, you're screwed. And that's what happens today is these guys these guys go to the ring wanting to serve prime rib, but this town's had prime rib for a month and they want a piece of fish or they want a bowl of beans and they try to shove that prime rib down their throat and they're like, Hell no, we don't want this yet. And they don't have the ability to change gears, change direction. 
Robley, Buck Robley, Bob Bain, that's all I can say. Buck Robley, Bob Sweetan. Get around those some bitches. They'll fucking teach you. <laughs> it's amazing, too, that, uh, you know, you, we talk about the match, and, and it still stands today. If there was any regret from that match, and, Ted, you just mentioned the term improv, that'd be my regret that they didn't go, you know, after Jake's interview, they didn't cut to you. Because, again, two of the best talkers ever. Jim, I want to come back to you in terms of when you think of what you had for props. Ted took a belt that really meant nothing and turned it into the million dollar belt and made a story out of it that every story revolved around it. It was so important. Jake had a snake, which I suppose helps because that obviously catches your attention, but the way he made the bag look. And you had a two by four, a piece of wood, but man, that was a big part of your match too. Who was going to get their hands on the two by four? Is that just something where that's all you knew in terms of you knew you had to make that prop work all three of you guys had some of the best props in pro wrestling and that's not because of the prop it's because of how you guys made it shine Jim is that is there something to that just in terms of you knew you needed to make that work or else you know actually the 2 by 4 came out of necessity back in the old days in the early 80s as Ted and Jake and even before they were testifying back in the 40s you know just getting back and twist in the ring very dangerous and you know, yeah. spit on you and punch you and kick you. Gotcha. Huh? I'm sitting in the back of the dressing room and Brody came in and he goes, uh, Dougie, if you carry something to the ring, carry something you can use. Forget those feathered boas and sequin <laughs> robes. And I looked down and I'm like, well, here's a piece of wood. <laughs> and I came out yelling, waving that two by four. It was like part in the Red Sea that people scattered. I'm like, this is great. Yeah. It's simple. It's, yeah. it's something everybody can identify with. That nobody wants to get hit with that son bitch. They understand that at ringside, you know, or in any role of the damn building. They know you don't want to get hit by a goddamn two by four swung by a big son bitch, you know. Nor do you want to get a snake thrown on you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or money stuck in your mouth and down your throat, right. Absolutely. Jim, yeah, I mean, my, you know, my character, even even before I was the Million Dollar Man, you know, I was uh, what we would we call it in the business, uh, excuse the expression, a chicken shit heel. I was the guy who would always talk real big, and then you know, I could I would show the people that I could wrestle, but I would always take the, the shortcuts. And when somebody actually confronted me, you know, you almost cower down. And that's and what you really are is you're a bully, and you know, absolutely. Because they're yeah. they don't ever pick on anybody their own size. Right. As, as a million dollar man, I would bully people with my wealth. And of course, you know, I had I had Virgil there. Virgil had the gun. I would look at you. <laughs> Ted, not to insult not to insult anyone who does this, but I feel like from everything I, I know about you, Jake, even Jim, but for you and Jake in your match, it sounds like you wouldn't have met before over coffee and planned out the match move by move. Did you no. guys meet at all before that match? No. No. What for? Just the finish, I suppose? I'm not, I'm not asking what are you doing afterwards or what bar are you going to or are you going to a titty bar or whatever. You know, that'd be about all I talk about. You know, I was too busy playing goddamn cards with the other with the giant. You know? <laughs> well, Ted, I've got to ask you too. It's fascinating because the business, if you're you know a, a, a fan in 2019, maybe newer fan, people are used to seeing definitive finishes. Even Jim's, I know, it had the two by four when he knocked out Dino and got the pin. There was a pinfall there. Your match was count out, and looking back, people might question that. But the era in 1990 that, that came from wrestling years before that was well, you've 
got to buy a ticket to watch the finish. You'll see them when they come to town. Is that why that match didn't end cleanly? It kind of ended the feud. But again, if you wanted to see the next match between Jake and Ted, well, you had to buy a ticket and go when they, when they came to town. Is that the right perspective? I think so. I mean, yeah, yeah just keep it, just keep it going, keep, to keep it to keep it going. So, yeah. if you if you uh, if you didn't end it there that was that way that night with a clean win, then then, then it's over. Then there's no yeah. story to tell. But if you, yeah, you, uh, you got to run something after WrestleMania, you got to show the next night, man. You better have something ready. <laughs> So, Jake, obviously storyline, but no regret that the match didn't, obviously, storyline-wise, didn't end differently? I mean, let me tell you something. I have enough confidence in what I did out there in the damn ring. What did losing didn't mean a fucking thing. All right? It didn't mean a damn thing, man. I never thought anything about losing the match. Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? Some of my best matches were when I got beat. What the fuck? But the be- the best part of that match, Jake, was when you finally hit the DD. When you finally hit the DDT. That's the art of what we do. That's back to the art of yeah. what we do. And what we do is it's the psychology of what we do. And it's when you can go out there and have a match, and, and you're and you're you're the heel, and and you end up losing the match and getting your ass kicked. But the people still hate you, and they want to see you get beat again. Yeah, it's absolutely. The ability to do that, the, the ability to make them want to come back and see it again. Brilliant too. That's, that's, that's one of the things that's missing in wrestling today is good guys and bad guys. Yeah, you're right. You know, and now it's all now it's all total whatever it doesn't matter. If you go back, you know, wrestling started way long ago. You know, before Vince McMahon even thought about being here. You know, it started a long damn time ago. You know, like Romans and a guy named Jesus. You know, and uh, like the Romans have lions. Okay, who's the bad guy here? Well, I'll take the, the skinny guy with the robe, man, you know. He ain't got a chance in hell to survive it. But yet he does. That's how you build a baby face. You put him in impossible situations, and you have him come out on top. David and Goliath falls that same out. script. Absolutely. You will him to win. You will him to win. The fan is involved in These people pay, a t- pay money for a ticket to come and cheer on their guys. Yeah, they're yeah. baby faces and their will to win that's when they transpose themselves into us and help us win a match Jesus Christ man these people paid for the ticket <laughs> let them be a part of it Jake I've got to ask you why you're they aren't that's why they sit on their asses and don't jump up and down Jake psychology wise you open the match by going wrestled. Oh, I'm sorry my parents who both wrestled uh, told me that, that during the depression the people didn't have a lot of money they would still, that wrestling thrived, and they said wrestling thrived because the people who were down and out would go and they would and they would watch those wrestling matches, and the baby face in that match who gets beat down is always, they know at some point he's always going to rise like the phoenix from the ashes and make a big comeback, and they saw themselves in the winning, coming out on top. Fascinating. And I think it's so hard to be a good guy in wrestling, which Jim did so long, so well for so long. Jake, I've got to ask before, we, as we start to wrap up, uh, you went right as the match started for that DDT. You didn't get it. Ted obviously had his moment with the Million Dollar Dream. He, he dominated a lot of the match, the offense. Was that the whole point for you, to, to get people wanting that DDT early? We don't see it to the oh, very, sure. very end. That's always, that's always the hook, man. You want to go out and establish that, and then Ted establishes the fact that he's scared the depth of it. Exactly. You know, he puts it over without ever happening to it. I let the DDT Ted just his reaction wherever I go for it. Shows the people this fucking guy knows if he gets in with that shit, it's lights out. Yeah. 
So that's the whole thing, man. You know, it's, it's sort of like, it's sort of like sex, man. You know, it's great until you get there, then once you get there, uh-oh, it's over pretty quick. Sorry about that, but okay, I still had a good time, you know. <laughs> you gotta keep going, man. You don't want to pop your thing at first and then have the rest of the match to go to. You tease it, you tease it, and then you please them. Perfect. Jim, as we wrap up, that match, your match was in the middle of the card. I don't know if you get a chance to watch Jake and Ted. I know now they have the WrestleMania after parties. Was there a, a, co- a company-sanctioned party afterward where people left to do their own thing? Would you stay and watch? And all three of you jump in on that, but starting with Jim. What happened in the aftermath? Like, did you watch the, the rest of the show, or was it time to go out with the boys? Oh, well, yes, but, you know, that's, so, that's so long ago. I don't know, man. They, they weren't having the after parties like they, then, no. they do now. That, no. There was a lot of stuff that wasn't happening yet, you know, the whole... Yeah. You know, really, we would come to WrestleMania, and it was just that day. It was that event. Yeah. Now it's a, yeah. it's like the Super Bowl. It's like Thursday, Friday, last damn week, man. <laughs> but that, we we were usually in our hotel room washing out our ties, trying to get ready for the next fucking show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and we left WrestleMania six and got on a plane and flew to Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, damn sure did. Damn sure yeah. did. You're right. I just think it's perfect timing that we're, they announced WWE. This is uh, we're filming on Thursday. WWE had their press conference today for WrestleMania 36, which will be 30 years after WrestleMania 6. And the reason I, I, it's always easy to forget your history, but the reason we're still here today are you three are a big part of that. Jake the Snake Roberts, the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Gentlemen, thank you so much for the time. We're joined by in the podcast world the legendary. I'd say even say, oh, award-winning, Conrad Thompson. Conrad, thank you for taking a minute to join us. Oh, my gosh. Whatever, dude. I appreciate you having me on. That's a cool <laughs> project you're doing. I'm excited. Thank you. Yeah, really exciting. And I think you can actually hear a little less uh, of an old-time radio sound or underwater sound is uh, this episode than with HBK. But at least Shawn Michaels sounded good last episode. This one, as you heard, it was DiBiase, Roberts, and Duggan. What, was, what are your biggest takeaways from WrestleMania Six, Conrad? Well, you know, as a kid, it was all about the main event. You know, I was such a Hulk Hogan fan, and now there's this new superstar here to take his spot, the Ultimate Warrior, and the opening, you know, with the uh, the whole graphics about the stars. And then the big pyro at the end with Warrior posing with both belts. I mean, I just remember it like it was yesterday. It was my favorite WrestleMania as a kid. It certainly had the biggest impression, but then as I go back and I watch it as an adult, man, that DiBiase... Uh, not DiBiase, but the uh, Jake the Snake's promo for the match with DiBiase was just unbelievable. Of course, as a kid, you know, I didn't care about that at all. But it's pretty fun, too, to, you know, go back and watch Dusty Rhodes and Macho Man. I think a lot of people sort of sleep on that feud, but it always had a special place for me because I saw it at a house show. So that show is just filled with so many personal childhood memories. It's, it's probably my favorite WrestleMania. And it's funny you mentioned the uh, Macho King, Dust, uh, Savage, Dusty match. On paper, if you say you're going to add Sapphire and a Liz- Scary Sherry to that match, it sounds, in my opinion, ter- like a terrible idea, watered down. But they made that match into one of the more fun ones of the night. I think I, Ted just said this. You heard. He mentioned that, or I mentioned one of the regrets was DiBiase should have had an interview, too. I think Robert's interview was so good. Um, you know he's gonna make he's gonna humiliate him. He's gonna he's gonna make him beg for his the money that's his own. It's a shame that Ted didn't have his own interview. But Conrad, another guy who we sleep on from WrestleMania six that made that moment with Jake so special, Gene Okerlund. Oh 
Oh, no, I totally agree. You know, you've got two of the best talkers in the history of the business. I'm, just the way, uh, you know, Gene delivered that line about Longfellow, you know, what what timing. And what a stacked card this is, just top to bottom. You know, it's just Hall of Famers all around. You know, you've got Jimmy Snuka and Ravishing Your Gruden there, and what's essentially a throwaway match. <laughs> I mean, two all-time greats there, just really in a throwaway. And Mr. Perfect's first loss to your boy, Brutus the freaking Barber Beefcake, just... <laughs> An unbelievable show. And then it's funny because so many people sort of sandbagged the uh, Orient Express match. But I really enjoyed that. Match. Absolutely. I don't know why, you know, some of the some of the, the writers at the time weren't a fan of it. But as a kid, I loved it. I thought it was good stuff. The whole card was phenomenal. And, you know, obviously it's a, a landmark show. It's the first WrestleMania outside of the United States. I mean, I wonder if we'll see that again. Maybe we'll see one in London one day. That'd be something. Absolutely. Thank you again. You can hear Conrad on Mondays with 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. He's also with Tony Schiavone, What Happened When, as well as Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard on Fridays. The best in the business, Conrad Thompson. Thank you again for listening. We are back next week. I'll announce on Friday our third guest for the next edition of the WrestleMania Series podcast. Again, this is Justin Barrasso. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 